But uh, I'm trying to hit some of the highlights of David's life and some of the, the big events. And he's still running from Saul. Uh, Saul is trying to kill him. Uh, there's this period of time. Saul is chosen king of Israel when he's about, when he's about 30 years old. Uh, he's king for seven days when God says, I'm going to replace you. Uh, and I've, I've picked a man after my own heart. Now, this is 12 years before David is even born. So then another 15 years goes by, about 15, and David shows up and kills Goliath. So that's 27 years. So Saul's going to reign another 13 years. So in that 13-year period, somewhere not too long after he kills Goliath, Saul realizes that David is the one that God has chosen to take his place. And so he, he, he begins to endeavor through a lot of different ways to try to kill David. So God anoints David to be king 13 years before he's going to get to be king. So God anoints him to act like a king and then put him really in a really precarious place for 13 years because God's got some stuff that he's going to work out in David. And God's got some stuff he's trying to work out in you too, right? You're not sure. Okay. Uh, so today I want to talk about how to have effective confrontation. You need to know this on the, on the scale, uh, in the Enneagram scale, I'm an, I'm an eight Nine, and you may not know what that means, but what it says is that eight is that I'm bossy and, uh, and I like to be in charge. And uh, nine is that I don't like confrontation. It seems like a weird combo, doesn't it? I'm a weird combo. There's no doubt about it. Okay. So I don't like confrontation. And I've avoided it in ways that has cost me drastically because I don't like confrontation. But it's possible you can have confrontation that is nothing but confrontation. And that's easy to have. It's easy to have confrontation, right? I mean, you can have confrontation between here and getting out of the parking lot. Confrontation is easy. It's easy to have confrontation. Driving, I don't, you know, Highway 80, you need to realize this. Highway 80 is the same as it was, was in the Eisenhower administration. I mean, they, you know, they improved Highway 80 from what it, what it used to be. You know, now they call it 20. But 80 that ran through all the towns and went, went through Terrell and Edgewood and all. They approved it and made this, you know, this interstate in the Eisenhower administration. When I was a toddler... And they haven't improved it from here until you get to downtown Dallas. And I'm jealous because you drive up to Plano and McKinney and places that didn't even exist 10 years ago have eight lane highways. So it has nothing to do with money, I'm sure. Nothing to do with money. But anyway, that's all about, you know, when you drive, you can have confrontation. And this traffic is horrendous. And it's horrendous everywhere. And, and, and all over Dallas, there can be, you can be in a traffic jam anywhere at any time. There's no safe place. 
So you can have, it's easy to have confrontation driving. It's easy to have confrontation at work. With, you know, because you, you always have that person at work. Uh, and then family. Don't you always get along with family? Absolutely. You know, you, I mean, <laughs> you want to have confrontation? Have children. I mean, you know, teenagers are somewhat complicated. And, you know, everybody is at times. Friends. So effective confrontation. So it's easy to have confrontation. How do we have effective confrontation? So we want confrontation that accomplishes something. You're not going to get along with everyone. You cannot get along with everyone. But confrontation is necessary for relationships to grow. Nobody liked that part. You get that? Confrontations are necessary for a relationship to grow. In other words, you're not always happy with everything that's going on, but sometimes you're afraid to say anything because the pain of the confrontation is greater than the actual outcome of the confrontation, so you don't say anything. And so, so how do we have effective confrontation? First Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. En Gedi is on the western side of the Dead Sea. It is, uh, it's, the name En Gedi means spring of the kid. Spring of the young goat. And it's a beautiful area. It's, it's, it's a desert, and also it's one of the major oasis areas in Israel. So in this in Gedi area, there's, there's several really important springs of fresh water, because the Dead Sea is not fresh water. It's super salty water. Can't live on that. So there's springs. So in that, there's some tremendous balsam trees grow there, palm trees, palm dates, it was a, you know, if you were trying to survive, uh, this is a great place. And the whole area is just riddled with caves. You may recognize uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the caves of En Gedi. So, and there's just thousands and thousands of these caves. And some of them are so large that they can hold thousands of people. So there's some large caves, and so you can see this would be a great hiding place, wouldn't it? Because, and it also was a place where they kept sheep, so it's a place that David would have known because he probably kept sheep there at times. So it was probably known to David and, and it, because it was in Judah, but it wasn't in the area of Benjamin, so Saul wouldn't have known it. It wouldn't have been in his hometown area, but it was in David's hometown area, so it would have been easier for David to escape to a place that he knew. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. And there, there are today, even today, there are ibex that live in this area. So this is the, they're saying these are these wild goats that live in this area. And he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. So what does this mean? It means Saul went to the bathroom. The actual term relieving himself means to cover his feet. So that meant with his clothing, I'm pretty sure. Uh, (laughs) Just let that soak in for a second. (laughs) So Saul has gone into by himself, of course, has gone into the recesses of this cave to relieve himself and uh, David and his men were far back in the cave 
And the men said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So his men are thinking, you know, this is our chance. This is David's chance to kill Saul. Because think about it. They're running too. They're just as miserable as he is. And they're not the king to be. They, their, their future is not secure. They don't have a promise of God that they're standing on like David is. And so they're saying, you know, here's your chance. So then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Same movement that he could have at the same time killed Saul with that same movement, right? Psalm 34, 16, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. So remember, he's been running. It's miserable. Have you ever had to live out of a suitcase for a very long to live in temporary place. Maybe, you know, some of you went through the tornado and your house was in really bad shape and you had to live in a temporary place uh, or live in one room while other rooms. And it's miserable. It, you know, there's the whole construction debris that's happening and, and all of that. Just living in temporary, living temporary is difficult. We've had, we've had kids that have moved back home with us and they don't really have the space, you know, they live in houses of their own and then come back and live with us in a room. And it's hard. It's hard for them because it's, there's, there's just, you just don't have your space. Uh, and that's what, so you can imagine there, it's been miserable. Uh, and so it would seem, okay, look, look, God's given you this opportunity, kill him. So then David stripped up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. So David's conscience says, ooh, you shouldn't have done that. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. So, so the, the guys say to David, David, this is your chance, and then David creeps up, cuts the corner off of his robe, and then immediately when he does it, he says, I shouldn't have done that. Because it's not up to me to determine when Saul leaves. God anointed me to take his place, but... God anointed him before he anointed me. So it's, it's up to God to determine when he takes him out. And apparently God wasn't in a hurry, right? Because it'd been 27 years since, since God through Samuel told Saul, I'm going to take this kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to a better man, a man after my own heart. So he, God wasn't in a hurry. Does that sometimes bother you that God's not in a hurry? Anybody? Of course it bothers us. You know, when we want God to do something tomorrow by three o'clock, you know, well, God, I prayed about it twice. You know, I even got up early one time, you know, I fasted for, you know, well, I ate breakfast late, but you know, it was like a fast. 
It was a lot like a vest. So, so why did David's conscience bother him? I think his conscience bothered him because he knew some of the stuff that was bubbling in his own heart. The fear that he's battling daily, he's battling fear. He's got faith, but faith is not the absence of fear. He's, faith doesn't mean you'll never be afraid. He's got faith, but he's also dealing with the realities that he is fighting for his life. And so we looked at last week at Akash, when he's in the house of Akash, he acts like he's crazy because he's afraid. He's also, he's got faith, but he's also afraid. All of us are a mixture. All of us are a mixture of faith and fear. There's things that, there's some things that you easily have faith for, and there's some things that you easily fear. And we're not all the same. And you probably, because God has a sense of humor, you probably married the opposite. You know, one of you worries about money, and then one of you thinks money's like water. <laughs> you know, if, it, if you leave it laying around, it's going to spoil. Uh, <laughs> so David knows he's got this fear, he's got anger, he's got frustration bubbling underneath the surface. He knows that he's, he's thinking, Saul, why do you keep doing this? But yet he knows why Saul's doing it. But you feel, it's almost like you want to say, God, couldn't you work this out better than this? Why does this have to be so hard? Why, why is life so hard? Why, why is marriage so hard? Why is raising kids so hard? Why is making money so hard? Don't you ever feel that? I'm sure David felt that. He's in, in the midst of this frustration. I'm trusting God. I believe God. I believe God. I trust God. I, I know God's on my side. You can read the psalm after psalm after psalm. You can also read, God, why don't you kill my enemies and make this easier on me? This is where we struggle. Romans says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it's possible and it's not possible. But if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live, live friend, peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is Old Testament. You wouldn't think, this doesn't seem like Old Testament, does it? It seems like Old Testament says, if, get your enemies. This is in the Old Testament. Quote, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So in the midst of this, then Saul, then David confronts Saul uh, and so we get some principles about how to, how to have an effective confrontation. Number one, first principle of effective conf confrontation is to be respectful and gracious. And that's sometimes hard with someone that you're really angry at. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He treated Saul like the king. He treated him with honor and graciousness, and he was respectful. 
So one of the things, if you want to have a, an effective confrontation, uh, is to, you need, well, <laughs> maybe if you throw yourself in humility before them, that might help. I don't know. Uh, but you need to show honor. And one of the ways we often do that is we do it with our tone of voice, with our posture, our timing. So, you know, it, sometimes if you're a person who, who likes conflict, who enjoys a, a nice little argument, and then you marry someone who doesn't like conflict, a person who likes conflict, any time is a good time for conflict. A person who doesn't like conflict, no time is a good time for conflict. So if you are, so you're different people coming together, so you, you want to respect the other person's timing. I mean, you want to respect what's going on in their life right now, you know, in that moment. Uh, you know, so it's the, you know, it's the fourth quarter and, and your team is almost about to win. And so you want to go in and turn off the TV and say, it's time for us to talk. Well, yeah, it probably is, but let's wait 15 minutes. And sometimes we just get unreasonable. It's like, well, I want to talk. Am I not more important than a football game to you? Right now, no, you're not. <laughs> Sorry. You will be in 15 minutes. But, you know, just... And then some people are, are, are morning people, and they wake up all chipper and happy. And some people wake up <laughs> angry at the world. Okay? And then some people, at about 8 o'clock, they start going to sleep. They're still up. They're still around, but they're, they're sleepy. And you have people that, you know, they can't even turn off their motor till about one o'clock in the morning. And y'all got married. <laughs> right? So when, how do you pick a good time? Well, it's not going to be morning and it's not going to be nighttime. It's going to be some other good time. You need to pick a time when both of you are at your peak. And be, so honor is being sensitive to that. Respect is being sensitive to that. Also, respect is, is a lot about tone. We also, what we end up doing, if, if we don't do this right, we end up fighting about how we're fighting. Instead of fighting about what we need to have a confrontation about. In other words, we fight about the fight. Well, you said, and then you said. And here's, here's what I've learned. I've, I've, I've counseled many, many people, hundreds of people, after they've had knock down drag out fights and here's the thing you can't remember the bad things you said but you can remember what they said <laughs> you'll you both cross the line and you both say inappropriate things that are hurtful and wrong and you can remember you she called me a, a... <laughs> he said no i did no i didn't but he called me we can, so we can remember our hurts, but we can't remember how we hurt other people. So you need to be careful. 
The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So, so you want to, so the number one thing is you want to be respectful. You want to show that you value the person, you honor the person. The goal is not to hurt this person. The goal is to solve a problem. Second principle of effective confrontation is to speak the truth. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David has been on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I'll not lay my hand on my Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. You are hunting me down to take my life. I mean, it's really straightforward. What does he say? Saul, quit trying to kill me. I'm not trying to kill you because if I was trying to kill you, you'd be dead. Because I had a chance to kill you. See this corner of your robe? I cut off your robe. I could have cut off your throat, but I didn't because I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointing. In other words, it's not mine to determine God's timing. God's timing is God's timing. I'm going to trust God in his timing. I don't always like it, but I'm going to trust God in his timing. So what do you do? You need to tell the truth. You know, I want you to, hey, would you stop throwing your clothes on the floor? And instead, look, there's the hamper. It was like two feet away. You're so close. Don't quit now. I like to pick on that because I never throw clothes on the floor. So that's not one of my vices. So I'm not going to pick on my stuff, you know, or, you know, what is it? What, 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 what do you need your spouse or significant other or person in your life that you need to have confrontation with? What do you need to tell them? Hey, stop spending money. We don't have, we can't do that. It costs too much. And so what you have to learn in this, this is not anything new. I've told you this many, many times, but the goal of confrontation is to attack the problem, not the person. You never get anywhere attacking the problem. You end up just, again, fighting about the fight. Once you begin by attacking the person instead of the problem, then it just becomes a, well, you don't, and you don't either. Well, you never did. Well, you should have, you know, and you just end up fighting then about the fight, fighting about each other, bringing up, you know, and then to win that argument. So once you get into that, you never, and you should argument. The only way to gain any traction in that argument is you got to bring in old arguments. You got to dig up old stuff. It's like going to the graveyard and digging up old bodies and bringing them into the new argument, you know? And it's not healthy. It's not helpful. You know what? I mean, you think David wasn't tempted to say, hey, Saul, you're an idiot. You're a moron. You're a loser. God doesn't want you to be king anymore. I'm the king. Wouldn't that have been helpful? See, calling names just creates greater conflict. No amens to that. Losing your temper causes greater conflict. Exaggeration. 
causes greater conflict. You always, you always do this. Not always. You never do this. So we exactly, in other words, we're trying to make a case. What are we trying to do? We're not trying to solve the problem. We've moved from solving the problem to winning the argument. The goal is to solve a problem. When you attack the problem, instead of the person, you have a greater potential to solve it. It can be effective confrontation. So you speak the truth. Hey, when you do this, you know, when you do this, it really ticks me off. When you drive the car down to no gas and you don't tell me, I mean, hey, we all use our cars up and we all empty the tanks. It's okay. But when you do this and you don't tell me, and I've got to be somewhere the next morning early, and then I get in the car and realize I've got two miles till empty. As Tina's mom used to say, she said, my car is dotting and dashing. You know, what, what is it? I mean, what is it that's driving you crazy? What is it that's bugging you? That you have to speak the truth. The Bible says clearly, when you speak the truth, you need to speak the truth in love. You don't need to be brutal with the truth. You're not trying to, you know, I just have to be honest. No. You want to speak the truth in love. So, so powerful. You go. Third principle of effective confrontation. Recognize you have no power to change people. Have you noticed that yet? Have you figured that out yet? You have no, absolutely zero power to change people. It is totally up to them to change. You have just as much hope of making people change as Saul had, as David had hoped that Saul would change. It was all up to Saul and God. So here's what Saul says. David finishes up. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done me, but my hand will not touch you. David says clearly, this is the truth. What you're doing is wrong. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you against whom has the king of Israel come out. Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. And may he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So he's, 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 he's saying, I'm going to have to turn this over to God. This is, I can't change this. I'm doing everything I can do. I've got to, I've got to give this to God. You know, there's conflicts like that in your life. Sometimes we just, you know, David needed to not let this conflict destroy him. You've got to learn to live within imperfection of relationships because every relationship is imperfect. You know why? Because it's got two imperfect people in it. You can't have a perfect relationship out of two imperfect people. So every, every relationship comes with a degree of brokenness where God is teaching you something through the brokenness. Why did God have 
David in the midst of this great difficulty for 13 years because he wasn't ready to be king yet. He had great faith. He knew God intimately, but there were things that he was not ready for that God wanted to prepare him for. God was working in his life just in the same way he was working in Saul's life. And he was working in David's life to a much greater degree than he was in Saul. God's working in the difficulty. God's working in your imperfections. God's working in your, in your, dis, your inability to get along. God wants to use that because he wants to mature you. He wants to work on stuff in you. He wants you to be more like Jesus and less like you. And he's still not going to take away who you are. It's incredible. So he's working in the imperfections of who you are. So how do we let go of it? How do we let go of it? We have to, we, we rehearse our resentments. We keep playing our resentments over and over again. We remember our regrets. If only, can you imagine David could have said, oh man, if only when Samuel had showed up at the house to anoint me to be king, I should have just stayed out in the field with the stupid sheep. It had been, it had been loads easier. I don't know if you know this or not, but God didn't call you to easy. <laughs> he called you to Christ-likeness. It, it would have been easier. We remember, you know, we played the if only, or I could have, I should have. But, but where are you? We reinforce our remorse. We nurse the pain instead of letting go of it. In other words, we just keep holding on to it. There's just some things you have to say. This happened. I don't like the way it happened. I got to let it go. I can't, I don't want the pain of the past to determine my present. I don't want to live in the pain of the past. I don't want the experiences of the past that have happened to be what determines where I am today. I want God to determine my day Amen. today. I don't want the past. So I can let that go. So this is how Saul responds. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I. He said, I have treat, and have, you have treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king. Did you hear that? Saul saying, I know you're the king. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by my Lord, by the Lord, that you'll not kill my descendants or wipe out my name for my father's family. So David, David gave him an oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul was extremely sorry. He wept. He, even, he sounded pretty repentant, didn't he? He even acknowledged that David was going to be the king, but he didn't change. And in a short time, he was chasing after David again. Why didn't Saul change? Think about that. You know why Saul didn't change? This is profound. Get ready for this. Because he didn't want to. <laughs> Change isn't change until it's change. 
Change is not intention. Change is not talk. Change is not feeling bad for doing something stupid and then getting caught. Change is a change, so it's change. Words Saul didn't want to change. The reason you know he didn't want to change is because he didn't change. Saul needed to act on the truth that he agreed with. What Saul should have done in that moment, you know what would have been powerful? What would have been powerful in everybody's life in that moment? If Saul turned around, took off his robe, put it around David, and said, God has anointed you to be king, and you will be king. And right there, and he turned around and bowed himself to David. Not only would it have preserved his life and his family's life, but it would have cut short the agony that he brought on for his fear of losing his job. So how do you change? I mean, he, he, wasn't, he was struggling with change. Well, one of the things is often the key to change is first acknowledging your inability to change on your own. You first have to say, you know, I'd like to change, but apparently I'm not capable of changing. I, I can't do this on my own. I need help. And the first help that you need is God's help. You say, God, I can't change on my own. I recognize my inability to change on my own. I think that's like the first step of AA, isn't it? Acknowledge your inability to change on your own. So go to God. I need change. And then, and then you've got to take steps. You've got to take steps towards obedience. There was, there was areas where he needed to take steps. If you, if, you want to, if you want to get free, if God breaks a chain in your life, it's one thing to be free, then what are you going to do with the freedom? You know, it's, if, if, you're, if you're in some kind of prison, some kind of a stronghold, in your life and Jesus comes and unlocks the prison door you're free kinda but you're not truly free until you act on that freedom and step out of the prison into life into responsibility into change God doesn't want you to just be sorry because you messed up. What he wants to do is help you move beyond that into change. That's why Jesus died. So we could have change. Let's stand. If you got chains... He's the chain breaker. Got some stuff you need to let go of today? Is there some stuff you need to move into today? You've been set free and you need to move into the freedom that you have? You need to move into what Christ has done in your life? A lot of people are sorry when they do stupid stuff. People who physically abuse people, other people are always sorry they did it. 
It doesn't mean they change. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're, not, we're not very good at changing. Mostly because we don't want to. But Lord, we know we need to. We, you know the areas where strongholds have us, where fear has us, where anxiety has us, where worry has us, where, where we act out on our fears and our anxieties, the bondages that have held us, the things of our past out of that chain us. That Lord, you want to set us free, but you want to just set us free to stay where we are. You want to set us free to, so that we can move in to the liberty. We can move into the freedom. We can move away from the bondage and into the liberty that you give us. Lord, we want the freedom of the sons of God. The freedom of the called, the freedom of the chosen, the freedom of those who have been set free. Because if the Son sets you free, you're totally free. You're free indeed. Lord, you know today where we're struggling. Lord, we acknowledge we cannot do it on our own. I don't have the ability to change myself. Lord, help me. Change me. Help me, Lord. Change me, Lord. By your power. In Jesus' name. Amen.